0: We'll be in Micah chapter 6 this morning in verses 1 through 8. And if you have not had a chance before this service to read the book of Micah, the encouragement is that this week you would read the book of Micah. How many of you have ever served on jury duty before? Show your, let me see your hands. How many of you actually, you've you gone and maybe you got dismissed, no one chose you, but you actually have served on a jury in a court case. There's a few of you. Uh, I had only been a semester out of high school, and I was in my first uh, jury I was selected to be on. I tried to convince the judge that because I was a high school coach, I needed the time off. And he said, no, you're going to serve. This will only take you a couple hours. And I sat there and we waited and they got the jury and the, the, the case began. And it was a, uh, a woman accused of shoplifting. Uh, she said uh, she did not do it, and then they played the video uh, of her taking shoplifting and also leaving with that. Um, it was a very short case. The jury, we went into the jury room. Uh, there wasn't the uh, hey, do you want to vote secretly and write it down a piece of paper? They said, hey, let's vote. And it was a unanimous guilty verdict because it was based on the evidence that was presented. Five years ago, I spent a couple of weeks on another jury, which I tried to get out of. Uh, they went through, I think it was 200 jurors, and uh, I had hoped to get off each time that someone else and like, oh, they'll kick me off. And uh, they didn't. Um, and I served on that. It was a very tragic one as it was a murder trial. And as there was some horrendous evidence that was presented from um, everything from DNA to pictures to testimony and witnesses. And as I sat there to think of this man that was being accused of this and then him taking uh, the stand and almost in a sense of incriminating himself and the jury after our deliberations found him guilty uh, later on to see that he uh, was sentenced to prison for Um, most of the rest of his life. I think of those courtrooms and those court cases and the terminology because I have no legal background, but I learned a lot about the court system in those cases. And in Micah chapter 6, you see Micah, a prophet of God, use courtroom terminology in this case that is brought uh, for us to read in Micah chapter 6. And as we look to this court case in that sense of these few verses, I have two questions for you this morning. Number one, do you have a case against the Lord God Almighty? Do you think you have a case against God? Second question. What indictments does the Lord God Almighty bring Against you. As we look at Micah chapter 6, 1 through 8, the scriptural truth is this God's holy judgment will bring an account to sinners and bless the truly repentant people of God. Look with me at Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and sent before you Moses Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of God. Father, again, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of the word. Work upon our hearts and may all the glory go to you in Jesus name. Amen. As you look at this text and you look at the writer of this text, his name is Micah. And what we see is in the first two verses, that is, he is bringing God's case against his people. It's not Micah who has a case. God has a case against his people, and he sends Micah with this message that he brings in Micah chapter one, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria Samaria, and Jerusalem. Micah is from the town of Moresheth. It's about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem that he is a country guy from a farming country area, and he is chosen by God to proclaim judgment Upon Jerusalem, specifically, not just Israel, but the tribe of Judah. And he brings this indictment of the corruption of the worship of God by the people of God. And he also brings to account in this book their social injustice. That the people of God that were supposed to love the people around them and to be standing for justice were ones who were breaking those things. They were the ones who were told how to worship the Lord God Almighty. And yet they were the ones who were breaking the laws of God and not worshiping him in a right manner. He specifically, like the other minor prophets, calls out their idolatry as they worshiped a false god called Baal. You see, what they did is they would mix the requirements of worship that God had given the nation of Israel. And they would mix in these other types of things in how people worship Baal or other false gods. He points out throughout the book that their social values that are given to them from the word of God are disintegrating. And their care for one another and for others uh, is failing And it's not something that is um, of the Lord. He calls them out for their non-ceasing pursuit of wickedness. That the people of God that are supposed to be holy and set apart from, they're seeking after wickedness only and always. And so in verse 1 of chapter 6, three times in the book, it says, Hear what the Lord says, just like we saw in the book of Jonah last week. It says, hear what the Lord says. And I would stop there and remind you of this. Micah is only a man. He is a sinner. Yet God has called him to declare his message. He did not say, Micah, go make up some stuff and tell the people and write it down for the followers of me for generations to follow. When you read the book of Micah, this is not Micah's own made up thoughts. These are literally the words of God given to Micah to speak to the people. And so I would remind you of a text in Second Peter in the New Testament, chapter one, after Peter speaks of that being an eyewitness of the glory of God and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, he says this in Second Peter one, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God that's printed for you to read is the words of God. It is not what some men thought up and said, I think he means this. So I'm going to write this down. Or I feel that God is telling me this. So I'm going to write this down. No, the Holy Spirit drove these men To write down literally what God had given for his people to read. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 also tells us of scripture. Which says all scripture is breathed out by who? By God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work So let us not forget, church, when we read these prophets, the greater prophets or the minor prophets, let us not forget that these are the words of God and they're not thought up feelings or I think it says this. Be very wary when you hear people stand in a pope and say, I think it says this or I feel it says this. The best commentary on the word of God is the word of God. We do not need any other book We do not need any other revelation. We do not need a commentary. We don't need another prophet. We have the prophecy of God's word and we should hold to it always. And as God has granted us other tools and strengths and people who can uh, help us understand, we must always go to God's word and cling to it tightly and never depart from it. Let us look back here at verse one, hear what the Lord says. And then it says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. The Lord calls the plaintiffs, Judah, to present their case against him. If you read through Micah, if you read through the Old Testament, the number of times that the nation of Israel would complain that God has done them wrong. And so he says, all right, let's go to court. You have your case, present your case. And the Lord God Almighty, who is the defendant, somehow to them has injured them. But let us not mistake that the Lord God Almighty needs, needs, needs not to make any defense for himself. He doesn't have to present any evidence because he is God. And he has given you life and breath and has created this world. But he says, plead your case before the mountains. Present your evidence. And you might say, why before the mountains? Why is he using the mountains as the jury? Well, the mountains have witnessed what has happened in history. The mountains have seen when God has called his people out to him, when the work that he has done, the mountains have not fled and left. So they are the best jury. They have witnessed these. They're the best witnesses to declare what God has done or not done. A number of times in the Old Testament, the Lord God tells the people of Israel, plead your case before heaven and earth. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. But he says, plead your case before heaven and earth, before the mountains, who are able to give a correct answer if they are right or not. And so as we look to what Micah brings, he says in verse two, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel God Almighty has an indictment that he brings against the people of God. Yes, his steadfast love endures forever, but he's a holy God. You were just singing about his holiness. And therefore, a holy God cannot stand wickedness, cannot stand sin, cannot stand darkness. And because he's a holy God and he's a completely just God, he must deal with sin by his wrath and punishment Hear you, mountain, the indictment of the Lord. You see, the Lord doesn't need to, but he does give a defense. And he brings and turns it on them who brings an accusation against him, and instead he brings the accusations against the people of God. The mountains, all of creation, have witnessed the whorings of Israel in which they would build these places of worship on the tops of the mountains, and they would burn incense to false gods. The mountains have witnessed when the nation of Israel took their children and slaughtered them and burned them in fire to worship Molech. And so they are the ones, the mountains and all of creation who have witnessed the nation of Israel not being faithful to follow the Lord God Almighty, but to continually Always turning against him and worshiping false gods. There's an indictment of, of doom. And if you don't know what exactly an indictment is, but it's a formal accusation that's based on whatever available evidence there is, but that there's enough evidence to prove that a person has committed a crime and even a serious crime that it would go to court. And so God says, I have an indictment against you. I have all of this evidence against you that you have committed a serious crime against me. And he says, I will contend with Israel. This week, on Monday, I was reading an article in the news. I found it very intriguing. There was a bishop in Southern Ireland, and he wrote a big apology for one of his priests who had given a sermon last Sunday. Here's what he said. In his statement, Bishop Ray Brown apologized. I'm aware of the deep upset and hurt caused by the contents of the homilies and questions delivered over the weekend. I apologize to all who were offended. The views expressed do not represent the Christian position. The homily at a regular weekend parish mass is not appropriate for such issues to be spoken of in such times. And he goes on. He apologizes for one of the priests who stood, stood up on a mass and gave uh, a, a homily or a sermon or kind of something like that. And here is what he preached. I listened to it and wrote it down. Father Sean Sheehy preached this to the church. Why or what is so sad today is you rarely hear about sin, but it's rampant. Said she, he. it's rampant. Sin is rampant in our government, abortion, transgenderism, gay sex. He said it is. A, he said it, he went on to say it was a sin. It's a fact. He said it's a reality. And then he said, God says you have a responsibility to tell the lost that sin is destructive and sin will lead you to hell. He went on to say, Jesus said he came to call sinners. You must admit you're a sinner. This is what God's word says. And the bishop dared write an apology and said to call out sinfulness and tell people that sin leads to death in hell is not Christian. And so I wrote him an email. Praying for him, I asked him to retract his apology. I said, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be upon your conscience that sin does need to be called out so that people would be convicted in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and they would turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. But do you see, Micah does the same thing? And that is lacking so much today. Throughout the minor prophets, doom and the wrath of God and the calling out of sinfulness and wickedness is constant, but there's always the declaration of hope. There's always hope for the sinner who believes in faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to be saved. So, church, do not wince, do not back up from sin. It is right to talk about sin, it is correct. To point people to the word of God, that the Holy Spirit would convict their hearts of sin. Like what Micah is speaking as God tells him, I have an indictment against you, people of God. You are sinners. You are wicked sinners. You've broken my laws and you committed serious crimes against me. And what he continues on in verses three through five. And the second point is a divine interrogation. God brings some interrogating questions before the people of God. Verse three, these two questions. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Is what God says. How have I wearied you? And then he says, answer me. I asking you these questions. Answer me. He's challenging again the people of God to state their case against him. He says, tell me how I've wronged you. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when we face troubles in this life, how quick are we to blame God? This happened. Lord, why did you do this? Someone dies in our family. God, why did you do this? Or why did you allow this? Whatever it may be. Something happens. I am so angry with you, God. I didn't want to talk to you. We are tempted to be so quick to attack the Lord God Almighty when we stray from his word, which shows us that he is a sovereign God and we live in a fallen world full of sin. And therefore, the consequences of sin are great in this world as we live here. We forget The book of Job in chapter one, in which God tells Satan he is a blameless, upright man who feared God. And yet he allowed Satan to go after Job and Job had everything taken away and his children died. And later on, when his friends come to comfort him, which they don't bring much comfort All of his friends, even including Job, begin to blame God in different ways, saying God did these things because you did that or whatever. We're so quick to blame God. And at the same time, we do know, as our study in the book of James, that God allows trials. God sends trials into your life. And he does that, as James chapter 1, and I think it's 1 and 2, it tells us to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because it's for the building up of your faith. It's for the sanctifying work in your life. And therefore, are you quick to blame God? Or are you quick like Job when he lost everything that was quick to bow down and worship him, even in his pain? In his sorrow, in his loss, Loss, he still worshipped the Lord God Almighty. God says, answer me. These questions, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And the reality, what he lays out through Micah and the prophets, is they have done that. He hasn't done any of that. They have wearied him repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. That he is long-suffering, that he is patient, that he is slow to what? Anger. Thank you, Lord, you are slow to anger with me. Instead, they blame God for that, and he turns it upon them. And the nation of Israel has wearied God. Those who sin against God weary him. And so what he does, he says, let me show you some evidence of what I have done. He says, let me correct you, nation of Israel, in verses four and five. He says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery and sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He says, I redeemed you the word ransom, rescue, deliver. He points him back to Egypt. The people of God were told to tell their children, to tell their children's children, to tell their children's children's children that they would not forget the great and mighty works of God. And so he says, go back to Egypt so many times. Go back to Egypt. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord God Almighty. He brought those 10 plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and then he brings the people out and they come to the Red Sea. And Pharaoh decides, no, we're going to go wipe them out. And God parts the Red Sea and the people walk across on dry land. And the Pharaoh, Pharaoh and his army enter in after the Red Sea. And God closes the Red Sea and wipes out the enemy. And the people of God are there in the wilderness. And they begin to complain about water. And God provides for water for them. And every, every year that followed after that till they entered the promised land, they complained that their bellies were growling and they were hungry. And so he gives them manna. And even as he brings them manna every single day that they would wake up and see that, except for on the, on the Sabbath day, he brings that before them. They complain, oh, we don't have the meat that we had in Egypt. He's all right. I will send you meat and it will come out your nose and your ears and you'll have so much meat. And He sends quail upon them and they still complain he brings them all the way through the wilderness by day and night. And a whole generation dies off for their sin against God. And he brings the next generation into the promised land. And he says here in verse 4, Micah writes the word of the Lord. Remember Egypt and remember that I redeemed you. I ransomed you. I rescued you as Second Peter t- speaks of Christ being our rescuer. And they were the ones who said, we have a case against you, God. He says, look at what I've done because you are my people and I have a covenant with you. Church, in what ways has God shown you mercy? How has God blessed you? You think about your life, even for those of you who are followers of Christ, before you came to faith in Christ, Think of how God showed you mercy when He could have just smoked you, wiped you out in an instant because of one sin, because of your sin nature, because of your uh, 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 not being holy. And yet, for the believer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He's opened your eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through faith you would be saved. And as Ephesians 2 tells us, that faith is a gift. Therefore, church, we should bless the Lord this morning because he's blessed us. We should praise him with the top of our voices because of what he's done to save us from our sin. Amen. We should pray and, 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 and lift our hearts before the Lord and not be like the people who bring their case against God, a holy God who has only blessed them and done what is right and just. He says in verse five, Oh my people remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor answered him. And you're like, well, wait, what? That's kind of a weird story. I don't know much about it. You need to read Numbers chapter 22, 23 and 24. Read Numbers chapter 22, 23 and 24. And you'll see this account of what God did. You might think, well, why didn't he just mention the you know, Jericho and the walls coming down? and All these other mighty acts, Balaam and Balak, that's just kind of a little story. He mentions it to show how intricately intricately connected he is in the life of his people. That this king would hire Balaam, this false prophet, to prophesy against the nation of Israel. And God said, no, you're not going to open your mouth against them. And three times Balaam opens his mouth to speak a curse against the nation of Israel. And all three times the only thing that came from his mouth was a blessing which enraged the king. Go read Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24. In verse 5, he says here of Micah, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? You're like, what are these cities? What are these places? Why would... I don't know these things. I don't have a map in front of me. Well, when the Israelites were going into the promised land, they came to the Jordan River. And their last place of where they camped at was Shittim. And while they were there, they began to do a horrible thing. As Numbers chapter 25 tells us, that while they were there, they broke the covenant with God. It says they whored with the daughters of Moab and began to worship Baal. This is what God calls them out throughout the prophets. And it began before he brought them into the promised land. And then God held back the waters when it was... uh, At its point of running over the rivers, just like we know well here in town, when the spring runoff comes and you see places that are being flooded, the nation of Israel came to the Jordan. The waters were at its peak and God held back the water and the nation of Israel walked across this dry riverbed into the promised land, showing God's power and his might and his glory. And so they end up in a place which they call Gilgal, which is here in chapter 5. And you can read that in Joshua chapter 5. And it's there that they renewed their covenant with God. Before they go and against the uh, enemy armies and the cities that are there in the promised land, they renew their covenant with the Lord God Almighty. And God points out these things in verse 4 and 5 with the questions based out of verse 3, to point them to the fact that their case of any gripe, any complaint, or anything that they would bring against God is false and wrong because he's shown his steadfast love to his people and he's been faithful and he has not broken his covenant with them, but yet the people of God have. And so you go from this court case and these questions to this change up in verses six through eight. The third point, he has told you what is good. So look at verses six through eight. You might say, well, this is a different section. I know verse eight. I've memorized it. It's a great verse, isn't it? Yes, you should memorize it. But we can't separate it from God's message here. He has this court case and all of this is surrounded about the worship of God. All of this is about worshiping the Lord God Almighty. It's not that, oh, you uh, took your child and put Berkha at Molech, or you built this statue and you did this. And No, it's about worshiping the Lord God is what the indictment is against them. And without uh, the work of salvation in your life, you cannot rightly worship God. There is no way that you or I could worship God unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the cross of Christ and Jesus Christ who poured out his blood and his grace and his mercy that by faith we would be saved. Apart from that, you cannot worship. All you do is what the people of Israel were doing. And it's religion. It's going through religious things. So this verse 6 is a wonderful question. Not only for Israel, but it's for every single one of you, including myself. Verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? In a sense, it's what must I do to please God, to worship him? What is God requiring of me? And again, we'll answer it here. But know there is a tendency in yourself To give a wrong answer. If I do this. Oh I found this verse here. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Oh God told me what to do. Now I'm going to please him. Don't be a Pharisee. And do religious things. Because God's word does that. And says that. And it's not something that's in your heart. By the power of the Holy Spirit. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? I know I've already told you to read like a hundred chapters already, but go read some more. Read Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. And, I, and some of you who do the reading annual plans, you've been Leviticus, you're like, I don't, Leviticus is hard. I don't understand. I'm supposed to take this moldy brick out of my house and throw it over here. I'm supposed to, you know, do this or clean things this way. And it's like all of Leviticus points us to the cross. All of Leviticus points us to Jesus. So read Leviticus in light of the cross and read it in light of this passage in Micah. In verses one through seven, all kinds of offerings and instructions about offerings are given to the nation of Israel by God. He says, "When you worship me, I require these type of offerings. you're going to do this type in this way, at this time, and that is what's going to be pleasing to me." He says, "Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old?" You see, there was an instruction in Leviticus about having a calf that was a year old. And that was a supreme offering in one sense because the people were there to take care of that calf for a year. Maybe it even is in their home and they're to care for it and to plan for it that they would bring this calf a year old as a sacrifice that God required to worship him. In verse seven here, it says, "'Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams "'and ten thousands of rivers of oil?' Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see the rams that are mentioned there, it's in Leviticus chapter five and six. A ram, if you were a part of the nation of Israel and following that law, each of you would have to provide a lamb at a point, And there's just there's direction on all those things as a guilt offering for any of your sins before God. You think about Abraham and he had his son Isaac and God said, take your son and take him to the mountain and sacrifice him. And it's like, what? Why would you tell Abraham to do that? And he takes him up on the mountain and Abraham trusted the Lord in faith in God that God would provide. And he tied up his son on the altar and he raised the knife to slaughter his son. And God says, stop. He says, I know that you trust me now. And over in the thicket, there was a ram that was caught, that the Lord provided. When you think of that, you think of the cross. Jesus was provided for his people to be sacrificed in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven by the blood that was shed. And Abraham took that ram and sacrificed it Therefore, you might think, as verse 7, as Micah says here, the word of God is like, oh, well, if I give one ram to God, how about I give all of these other rams? I'll give thousands of them. God will be pleased with me. Or how about oil? There's direction in the law, too, about olive oil and and, and the first pressed olive oil and how to use that for God. Uh, If I give 10,000s of rivers of oil, God has got to be blessed. I mean, he's got to be pleased with me then. Have you ever fallen into that trap? Okay, I went to church 48 out of 52 Sundays. I went to that over here. Oh, you know what? I served and I used my gifts. You know what I gave extra financially this year? The trap is you think that God's pleased with you because of that. He's not pleased with any of that. He wants your heart in pure worship, in spirit and in truth. And the way that's seen is being obedient to him. At the same time, you must know you cannot be obedient to him. The Holy Spirit is the only one, the Holy Spirit of God, to work in you so that you would be obedient to the Lord God Almighty. King Solomon, he, uh, he when he dedicated the temple in First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 63, it says, Solomon offered, offered as peace offerings to the Lord, listen to this, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep, Imagine the amount of blood. Think about the amount of ashes, those things being burnt on those heaps there. And that was to worship the Lord God Almighty. But yet Micah speaks here the word of God and says, you can give as much as you want and God will not be pleased. So again, the question there in verse six, uh, how shall I come before the Lord in worship to please him? If I can't please him with my life, if I can't please him with these gifts, what is it? Samuel said this in First Samuel 15 regarding giving of offerings. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So I say it for the third or fourth time, your greatest gift to God means nothing to him. If you're trying to do something for him to be pleased with you, to try to get rid of your sins, for him to think, oh, I love that person now because they do this. The word of God tells us that if we love God, we will obey him. That is what flows from the life of the person who worships him in spirit and truth, who's empowered by the Holy Spirit to then obey. Because I could probably, we could probably have a great discussion in this room if everyone was honest here, if you're a follower of Christ, and I begin to ask you about your week or your day or your year or whatever it is, and ask you about, like, hey, did you obey the Lord this week? You'd be like, oh, yeah, I did really good. And then you're like, oh, should I tell him about Tuesday? No, yeah, I, I, I you know and those things become to weigh upon our conscience. For the believer, you will battle with sin until the day that you are with the Lord. And as the word of God tells us in Hebrews. That after life here, our soul is made perfect in holiness. Imagine no more sin, no more disobedience to the Lord. And then at the return of Christ, on that day of the Lord, as we've seen through the messages of the minor prophets, the believer's perfected soul is matched with their body that's glorified and perfected with the Lord for all eternity. Amen? Amen. We long for that. We want the day of the Lord to come. And therefore, it's important... To look at verse 8 as we close. He has told you, O man. And the word O man there is the one going back to Adam in the garden. So think about this. Go back to the garden when things were perfect. And Adam and Eve, they walked with the Lord. Think of this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Doing justice. There's an action that's called there for the believer to do what is right. To not only believe that there should be right justice in this world, but that you would actually do justice to bring about right relationships with people, pointing them to God and with one another As scripture tells us, things like caring for widows and orphans, being honest witnesses, not showing favoritism. The list goes on and on, but it says to cause he calls you as a follower of Christ to worship Him is to do justice. Jeremiah chapter 22, the prophet writes in verse three. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. We could go on and on Sunday after Sunday and look to uh, how you would do justice by the power of the Holy Spirit under God, according to his word. The second thing he says, love kindness. The word has said to love has said it means goodness, loving kindness, mercy and faithfulness. And over 200 times in the Old Testament, the word has said is used to describe God's loyal, steadfast love of his people. And it's also seen in his actions. It's a wonderful picture. What Mike is saying here. As God brings it back upon them and says, look what I've done for you, people of Israel. Look what I've done to show my love, my chesed for you. We're to love God and to love one another in that way. And then walk humbly with God. Two things involve walking humbly with God. Number one, walking humbly with God is trusting in him, following him daily, that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that it's his will over my will. And we do that by going to the Word of God. Psalm 119, 105. 105. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my what? My path, my life. You want to know where to go, how to walk, what to do? Seek the Lord today in His Word and He will guide you and direct you and His Holy Spirit will confirm and move you in the way that He wants. But the second aspect of walking humbly with God is to Seek to be humble. And we do that by knowing that God is in complete control of all things. And when we begin to think that I, me, my, we are in control. We begin to go down a path that leads to man being God. May the Lord guard our hearts. And may the sovereignty of God that we see through scripture be that which rules over our hearts in our days and how we live and enact. God rebukes the religious people and says, basically, all of us don't be religious people. Don't try to worship God through religiosity. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says this to the religious leaders, the people that were to lead the nation of Israel in worshiping God. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. What's he call them? Hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's those Pharisees that Jesus says, thank you, God, I am not like those people. I've brought extra offerings. I've done this for you. And the tax collector is like, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says, that's the man who went home justified, not the religious guy. Some of you this morning have got to give up your religious practices. And you need to come to Jesus and worship him in spirit and truth. And as you do that, the Holy Spirit will move in you so that you can do justice. So that you will love kindness. So that you will walk humbly with God. And he will work on your life every single day, every moment, until the day you're with him for eternity. And we can say, thank you, Jesus. Because it's all about him and not about us. And so lastly, this is the question. What should I do? What you should do is look to Jesus. Church, you should look to Jesus. Non-Christian in this room, you should look to Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says, Look to Jesus, O little town of Bethlehem. The Messiah will be born there hundreds of years after he states this prophecy. And just as we celebrate at Christmas, at the first advent, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, the only child that can bring salvation to any of his people, the only child who would live his life and never sin, the only child that could grow up and be nailed to a cross and go through all of that suffering and shed his blood and at the cross take on the sins of his people being made sin so that his people could be made the righteousness of Christ and God the Father poured out his wrath meant for his people, those all those who are sinners. And Jesus took that wrath so that you, through faith, in not only his death on the cross, but his resurrection from the grave, that you would be saved. As the worship team comes forward, as we prepare to take bread and cup this morning together, that is what we look to. We look to Jesus in Micah chapter 7. It says this in verse 18. I mean, listen to these words. It says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. Listen to this. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Father, thank you for your steadfast love for your people. Thank you that you have loved us first. Thank you that before you even said, let there be light, that you had a plan to save your people from their sins. You are awesome. You are holy. You are righteous. You are just. And our heart's desire is to praise you for saving us, to give you thanks and all the glory because you have saved your people from their sins. Father, I pray that if any in this room are here and have never come to a point of faith in their life, that today is the day of salvation and that you, Holy Spirit, are opening their eyes to the gospel of Jesus. Save them and give them the gift of faith that they would believe. Father, for all of the brothers and sisters in this room in Christ, all of the saints in this room, We pray that as we take bread, as we take cup, that you would be glorified in this moment as we reflect, as we remember, as we look forward to being with you. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.